So it is with great honor and privilege that I want to introduce to you General Director of Church of God Ministries, Reverend Jim Lyon. Thanks, Brian. It's, it's a treat for me to be here. And uh, let me just say straight up, that Brian guy that pastors this church, he's one of the brightest and best. And I see a lot of places, I see a lot of people. But never take for granted the people that God has appointed to shepherd you here in this congregation because you're very, very blessed. And that said, I am so privileged to be here at Oregon Trail. I live in Indiana now, but actually Seattle's my home. I grew up there. <clears throat> in fact, I just uh, met Brian's mother-in-law after the first service, and she and I both graduated in the same year in high school in Seattle. She went to Chief South in West Seattle. I went to Ingram up north uh, Seattle, but uh, same year. That means that we were staring each other down at those football games. It was a big year. <laughs> that year. Ingram won. I know we beat South, but I digress. I'm just saying I came from Seattle and uh, I grew up there and I became the pastor of the church that raised me up and I kind of lived in a small little world. And then one day in 1990, I got a call from this place saying, would you come and speak at a series of meetings at the Oregon Trail Church of God in Caldwell, Idaho? This is really important to me because before that time I had never spoken anywhere outside of my local church. I had not been invited and I was very intimidated by the opportunity. I came and I remember so vividly the hotel that I stayed in. I'm a runner, I was then, I am still today, but I remember running around the town of Caldwell. I can, Caldwell, I can see the green grass, I can see the streets. The whole thing was seared into my memory because it was a big threshold. I, I was suddenly being drawn out of the cocoon of my home place. And somebody else thought that I had something to share. And I remember getting here, and this building was not constructed. It was just the gymnasium. That's where the meetings were held. And I remember getting here and, and thinking, why would anybody want to hear what I have to say? Why would they call me here? I just felt so small and so inadequate. And it changed my life because I was so warmly welcomed. People were so dear and, and generous in their spirit. And it just... It gave me so much encouragement and confidence and, and kind of breathed life into me. It's a phrase I use often, breathing life. But you breathed life into me. And so a lot of years have passed, a lot of waters under the bridge since 1990. This is my first visit back since that visit then. But I have always remembered Caldwell. Whenever I hear the name Idaho, whenever I hear the name Oregon Trail, whenever I hear the name uh, Caldwell, I, I'm like, yes, that's what changed my life. So here you are. Thanks so much. You didn't even know you were speaking into somebody's life way back then. But that's the way life goes, doesn't it? We never know the impacts of our, our passing. We cross paths, we see people, we nod, we smile, we speak, we listen. You have no idea what God is doing for you. I'm so thrilled to be here on this day when Pastor Brian and his wife Maureen, my wife's name is Maureen too, so I'm, I'm connected there. And then today they're dedicating their daughter. I am an adoptive person. I was adopted when I was four months old, taken from an orphanage. I'm an Irish citizen by birth. My father was imprisoned by the uh, British because he was a member of the Irish Republican Army. He was imprisoned at the Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. Through a long train of events, I found myself adopted by a Church of God family in Seattle. Long story, don't ask, but I'm just saying, there are things that happen in life and you have no idea what their import will be. And here you are, here we are, not by chance, but by the appointment of heaven for some design that God has that he knows that we may not fully comprehend. I bring you greetings today 
from the family of churches of which you're a part, this ministry, this movement called the Church of God. We have several thousands of churches in the United States and Canada, and we have 3,000, three times as many more uh, in the world abroad, about 90 more other countries. And you're part of a large family, a network of people who were born in the late 19th century, a movement that has a lineage that goes all the way back to Jesus. Sometimes people ask me, who founded your church? Jesus did. And we are just a descendant through many other great men and women of faith over many generations. But in the 19th century, two big ideas stood out. One, the Holy Spirit has the power to possess us and empower us and, and to do with us what we could not do for ourselves. And that Jesus was the subject. Jesus is the simple center of all that we are. We rally around Jesus. We're Jesus' people. And we also believed in the unity of the body, that all people who were born again, who were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They were a part of the church of God. And that all the other claptrap, all the other baggage, all the other rules and regulations and disciplines that so often get in the way and divide the people of God could be left by the curb as we focused on these core essentials. And still today, we have five things we consider to be non-negotiables. One, that Jesus is the subject. He is the central figure. He's the reason we are his. We follow him. We also believe in holiness and the Holy Spirit and the power of that spirit to be an active presence in our lives today. We believe in unity, that all of the body of Christ should be united as one and we should not be subdividing on things of lesser consequence. And furthermore, we believe in the great commandments of Jesus, that you love God with your whole self and you love your neighbor as yourself. And that he told us, this is the sum of all the law and the prophets. If you want to know all the rules and regulations of the scripture, know this, love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. And then at last, we believe in the supremacy of Scripture. We are people of the book, of the Word. And whatever the dispute might be, whatever the argument, the challenge, the difficulty, whatever the question might be about faith, practice, conduct, or thought, the Bible is our backstop. We're back against the Word. It measures us. It's the plumb line by which all faith and practice is measured. These are five simple things. But that's who we are, and you're a part of that family. We are so proud you are. Thank you for the work you do here. I'm so pleased to call you a part of our family. That said, I've been invited to bring to you something from the Word that is so central to who we are as a people. And I've been studying myself in the Gospel of John and the letters of John. John, the only one of the 12 disciples we believe who lived to an ordinary and natural death. All the other disciples were murdered. Save Judas, of course, took his own life, but the other disciples were all murdered for their faith. But John lived long. He suffered for his faith. He was imprisoned. He was sent into exile. But so far as we know, he lived long, probably into his 90s. And he had the time to reflect on his journey with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He was not giving us something from someone else's testimony. He lived it. And he wrote this book called The Gospel of John, and then three letters that followed. If you read them all together, these four books in the New Testament, you'll see common language, common emphases. He talks a lot about life and how Jesus came to give life. He writes at the end of John's Gospel, he said that if all the things that Jesus did had been written down, if all of the things in the eventful life of Jesus could be recorded, all the books in the world, John said, could not contain them. But I have written these things, he said. I, an eyewitness who knows they are true, I've written these things so that you could believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the sent one of God. He is the son of God. And that believing this, you would find life in Jesus' name. He actually chose eight miracles. And the whole Gospel of John is hinged on the skeleton of eight miracles, eight stories from the many he might have told that he believed demonstrated the power, centrality, and the divinity of Christ. 
so that you could believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And I've been studying this book of John's gospel and these three letters for the last few months. I keep rereading the same stuff over and over. That's the wonder and miracle of scripture, that it can be fresh anew, even though I've been reading the Bible since I was 12. I'm 66 years old. I've read the Bible every day since I was 12, literally, I think every day. And you can read the same stuff over and over, and it still is fresh. Sometimes it does not feel fresh, but right now, I'm telling you, the gospel of John and the letters of John are jumping off the page right into my heart. And so I'm going to share with you some of my own journey. And today I want to share with you from John chapter 6. It's a miracle of Jesus, one of the eight that John chooses to demonstrate the power and the centrality and the wonder of Jesus. This miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels except the resurrection. The rising of Jesus from the dead you will find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Otherwise, the miracles of Jesus are not found in all four. You can read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John's gospel, but you can't read about it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's not there. You can read about the shepherds hearing the angels sing on the night of Jesus' birth, but you can't read about it anywhere except in Luke chapter 2. You can read about all kinds of things in Matthew and Mark and Luke that you won't find in John. But there's one story told four times. I believe the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not just John writing his reflections like in a journal. His hand, I believe, was held by the Holy Spirit, supernaturally editing what he wrote. And the same is true for Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the whole of scripture. It's God-breathed. And if the editor of the scripture... God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit chose to tell us this story four times. That says something to me. I've been married for 40 years. I learned early on that if my wife repeats something to me one, two, three, or four times, she wants me to get it. And I think the Holy Spirit wants us to get this. This story has unique properties that has been repeated to us four times. Maybe that means we should be studying it over and over. Maybe we should be looking at it as more than just one of the stories of Jesus. No, it is a supreme story of Jesus. But the feeding of the 5,000, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, feeding 5,000 people is a job, and if you had to work in a kitchen, you'd be exhausted by it. But really, in the world of 24-hour supermarkets, is that really such a big deal? Well, in the time of Jesus, when people couldn't get food easily, it was a big deal. But even today, it's a big deal when you think about taking a small lunchbox and supernaturally transforming it to meet the needs of thousands. Now, there's something in this story that we all need to learn. And like all of scripture, while it has its origins in millennia ago, it is as relevant and as sharp today as today's news. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the New Living Translation from which I read, and it is the word of God. And this is what it says. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. 
Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Father, at the reading of the sacred word, I pause for a moment more in prayer and just thank you for it. I thank you for this history in real time and real space that has been preserved for us by the hand of the Holy Spirit. You have carried it across oceans and continents, generations, languages, and you've delivered it to us once more here now. I pray that the same Holy Spirit that authored these words will work in our hearts and stretch us, dare us, encourage us. I pray that all of us will be closer into your will and way for having been here now. And I pray that you'll be the governor, not just of what is said, but what is heard, so that all of us might be engaged in a kind of supernatural transaction in this moment, from heaven to earth. I pray in the single and the sacred name of Christ Jesus the Lord and for his glory alone. Amen. After this, after the things that happened in chapter 5, Jesus sails across the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee. Let me just pause a footnote here. Every other year, every other January, I take a group to the Holy Land. People from the Church of God all across the country get on the bus. We'll go again in January 2020. Come with me. Let me show you the Sea of Galilee. Let me show you this stage upon which so much of the ministry of Jesus took place. Whatever we think about the headlines, whatever we think about history, whatever we think about the politics, everybody has to acknowledge that God in his wisdom somehow chose that patch of dirt and that body of water to be the place where the finger of heaven reached down and revealed himself to his creation. It's there that Jesus walked and lived and sailed. He who is the exact representation of God in human form, he lived there. And when today you go on the Sea of Galilee and get in a wooden boat and sail from one side to the other, you come as close to that moment of the New Testament as you could possibly attain in this life. That said, the Sea of Galilee was that body of water. It's a big freshwater lake, almost square, seven by eight miles. The hillsides are today just as they were then. When you're on that water, you can see the hills. You can see splashes of color. Behold the lilies of the field. Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. You can see the mountains. You can see the wind that comes down from the hot Mediterranean and sweeps down the hills and clashes with the cold air that comes from uh, the mounts on the other side where there's snow. And, and it comes down and you can see the storms and the choppy water. I means all right there, still today as it was then. And Jesus sailed across this lake and he wanted to find some time to be with his closest friends just to chill because the scripture also tells us that there are people hounding him everywhere. There are crowds following him always. Why? What is it about Jesus that draws a crowd? Is it a circus act? Is he America's Got Talent with card tricks? No. Jesus changed the way people live. The scripture is plainly telling us. He does miraculous things and he heals the sick. He makes life better. He gives hope to the hopeless. For people who don't know what to do next, he shows them a way. For people who are trapped, he sets them free. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth as a young man and declares who he is. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, what? To preach good news to the poor. Not to the rich, to the poor. You can talk about the poor in spirit all you want, but he was talking about those who were economically disadvantaged, who were trapped with their backs against the wall and had no opportunity and no way forward. He said, I've come to bring good news to them. 
and I've come to help the blind see. I've come to set the oppressed free. I've come to give the captive freedom. I've come to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. Your life could be better than it is. You can be set free. You can find life. The thief, the enemy of our souls, Satan, the adversary, comes to rob, to steal, and destroy. He sucks life out of the room. He sucks life out of your soul. He sucks life out of your family. He sucks life out of your job. That's the devil's business. But I, Jesus said, John 10, 10 famously, I have come to bring them life, life more abundantly. That's why the crowds followed him. Be a people that give life. Don't walk into the room and suck the life out of it. Don't be the church that's known for being dark and gloomy and judgmental and harsh and unhappy. You're not that. I know you're not. But don't ever let yourself be that because some people are that. And they bear the name of Jesus and drive a wedge between the people who seek hope and the gospel itself. We are people who bring life. Let the breath of heaven fall into you and breathe that life out. Do you change the way people live? Does this church change the course of events in Caldwell? Is Idaho different because you're here? Is Idaho better? Do people find more in life? Is their life more abundant because you're here? The church is not here just to sing songs. We're not just here to have a Sunday school. We're not just here to have a singing Christmas tree. We're here to change the way people live. When you do that, when you give hope, and you can actually demonstrate the power of the gospel to change a way of life, crowds will follow you. Not everybody who followed Jesus would choose to actually follow him. In other words, people who were seeking hope didn't want to pay the price of following him and might go away. But people who have an intersection with Jesus are never the same. Even those who become his enemies cannot go back to the place they were before they met him. Because Jesus is a transformational figure always. He's there on the hillside by Galilee. He's got his disciples, and here's the first lesson. This is why I think... This story is told four times because in all four of the gospel narratives, Jesus is inquiring about how are we going to meet the need of these people. They're going to be hungry and it's going to be a mess up. There's a big crowd of people here. They're out far removed from any source of food and they're going to get hungry. And when people get hungry, they can be angry. They can be cross. You might think that uh, that's not such an important concept, but it really is. I, I realized when I met my wife that she had to have nourishment at routine intervals. I'm not like that. I can go for a whole day without eating or drinking, it seems. But my wife wasn't like that, and I tended to put her in a car, and we'd go somewhere, and I wasn't stopping to eat or drink. And you know what happens after about four hours when Maureen Lyon, Maureen Elizabeth McGlynn O'Connor Lyon, my Irish princess, 40 years on, <laughs> as it was in the first year. If she does not get food or nourishment every four hours or so, she gets really cross. She gets irritable. She gets frustrated. It doesn't matter how sweet and charming I am, how brilliant I am, and how I dazzle her, she doesn't care. Get me something to eat. I've learned now that if I'm going out and we're going out somewhere, I better have food on the table. I better have something packed. I better have some snacks. I have something going because after a few hours, the whole thing's going to wind down. You know what? That's, not, that's human nature, isn't it? Now, I can go longer without eating than my wife can, but sooner or later, I get, I get angry too. I get cross. And you take 5,000 men who are starving, and the guys who were buddies at the beginning of the sermon will be wrestling with each other over the grilled cheese sandwich by the end. Because there's something that happens when your body is hungry, when you're thirsty, you're desperate. We know this in all human dynamic, in all social civilizations, in all anthropology, it's so clear. When your body is hungry, you become less than your best. 
And Jesus could foresee that with all these men out there, it was going to be a problem, a riot. What are we going to do? First lesson, Jesus sees the problem before anybody else. Jesus understands that the crisis is coming before you know it. And in this broken world, all of us live in a broken world. There's going to be a hurricane or an earthquake or Mount St. Helens is going to blow up or you'll get a brain tumor or your family is going to be torn apart or your job's going to be lost. Don't be discouraged. Life is good. But I'm telling you, life is filled with unpredictable twists and turns. And sometimes people are paralyzed. They're afraid of the next day because they're not sure what's going to happen and it could be bad. And I'm here to give you a word of hope. Jesus is two steps ahead of you. He's already there. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. You can just relax. He's got this. And when you are his, when you are in his company, when you are surrounded and clothed by his spirit, you have no need to worry about what is to happen next because Jesus is walking ahead of you. I travel a great deal. I love to travel. I love to go around the world. I, I'm, I'm all in. And I like some adventure travel too. And I go to India often. I've been going to India for 31 years and I go to remote parts of India. It's not just the Taj Mahal. There's some places there where they've never seen a white person before that I visit and, and I, I, I'm revved up by that kind of stuff. I had some guys in my church in Anderson where I was pastoring and trying to get them to come with me, but they wouldn't go, they wouldn't go, they wouldn't go. Finally, uh, I have one good buddy who does everything. I mean, he, he scales the face of El Capitan at Yosemite. He's a scuba diver. He's a jumping out of airplanes guy. I wouldn't do any of that, but he won't come with me. And I said, why won't you come with me? He says, Jim, the truth is I'm frightened. You're frightened? He said, I don't want to get in a plane and fly over the ocean. I feel like I'd be up there and I'd be helpless. And so I, I just can't do it. And then furthermore, even if I got to the other side of the ocean, I, I can't dial 911 and get help. If I'm climbing in Yosemite, I could dial 911 and somebody's going to come help me. But over there, it's not going to work. I, I just can't do it. I said, Wow. Oh, okay. A few years later, I'm going, and he says, Jim, I want to go with you. I said, wow, great. Why? He said, because I've decided if I go on the plane with Jim Lyon, I'll be safe because you travel all over the world, and you come back. <laughs> and I said, don't, don't go with me on that account. I serve a God who's so powerful, he can take the plane down and kill everyone except me. If he has purpose for me to live. Alternatively, that plane could go down and everyone will survive and I'll be the only one who died because my days are held in the hand of God. They are numbered by God. I am his. I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm not going to be stupid. But I'll tell you what, I'm not worrying about what's dark out there because I am the Lord's. And this story of the feeding of 5,000 is a signal to all of us. Jesus sees the crowd. He sees the starving riot on the horizon. He knows that's out there and he knows that you're going to be in the middle of it. And when it's approaching, he may prompt you to ask some questions. And you can wrestle with it, and he wants you to sort out. He wants you to problem solve. He doesn't want you to just sit back away for a miracle. He wants you to problem solve. But in the end, you're going to need him to take you the final distance. And Philip says, I don't know how we're going to feed him. Uh, this is hopeless. And this is how we react to difficulties. It's hopeless. The, the problem is too great. We can't overcome it. And Wait a minute, we, we can't afford it. We don't have enough money. In fact, the original Greek of this says that Paul, uh, Philip says to Jesus, if we had 200 denarii, a denarii was a Roman coin that was equivalent to a full day's wage. So if I worked for 200 days, if we worked for months, that's the New Living Translation, but if we worked for months, we still wouldn't have enough money to do this. It's impossible. The dinner is for today. 
We don't have time to get the money. We have no access. It's just impossible. Now, in the other gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that the disciples gave Jesus this reply, send them away. Get rid of the problem. <laughs> we don't, it's too big for us, so we just want to ignore it. Just get rid of the problem, and this is what we do. I just don't want to know about it. I just want to stop the problem. Build a wall and stop the problem. Tear down the wall and stop the problem. Whatever it is, I want to drive by it. I want my blinders on. I want to be in the cocoon of the safety of my own home like you were, you were deciding about your life here. I mean, at so many levels, we, we just want to shut it out because it's overwhelming. I don't even want to know. I don't even read the newspaper. I don't listen to the radio. I, I don't pay attention to that stuff because it's just too overwhelming. Folks, the people of God should be in tune with what's going on in the world today. And don't be intimidated by the problems. Don't be detoured by them. God is greater than anything that could be a problem. But Philip and his companions are ready to just shut it out. We can't do it. We're overwhelmed. And here's another important lesson. This is in every one of the narratives. Four times we're told this. They all say we don't have enough money. We too often define the work of God by the amount of money we think it costs and what we have. Never define ministry by money. This is not to say money doesn't matter. Of course it does. It's not to say you shouldn't be smart with money. Of course you should be. But it is to say, never allow your vision, your opportunity, your reach, your ambition, who you think you are, to be defined by money. Because money is deceptive. And people do not have value because they have money. And people are not smart because they manage their money well. Money is something that comes and goes, and it's all being destroyed. I grew up in Seattle, and I grew up with Bill Gates. He and I went to neighborhood schools. I, I went to Ingram High School, as I told you already. He went to a Tony upscale private school for boys called Lakeside, just a few blocks up the street. But Ingram and Lakeside often did stuff and so on. Now, I don't know Bill personally. He wouldn't remember me from the yearbook. But you know what? I, I think about this so often. Bill Gates and I were then, as we are today, geeky, nerdy guys. When everyone else is playing football, he's in his garage tinkering with wires, and I'm reading books and watching Dark Shadows. And if you know what that is, you're as old as I am. <laughs> and you know what? Today, Bill Gates and I are just the same. The only thing that separates me from Bill Gates is about $85 billion. Except for that, we are just the same. But he has no more value. He's no more smart than I am. Don't let money drive you. And that's in this narrative, four times. Money is not the answer. Ah, but here's another important lesson. Jesus knows what he's going to do even before he asks Philip. He's testing Philip. He's trying to figure out, or he's helping Philip grow in the test. He's helping him understand that, you know, there's more to this than just what meets the eye. But Jesus knows what the answer is to the problem. Not only does he know what the problem that's coming down the road, you don't even know what it is yet. He's already got the answer. Don't worry about it. Just be all in for him. Andrew's watching this conversation unfold, Philip and Jesus, and it's clear that Jesus is not satisfied with Philip's answer. And I'm thinking, Andrew's thinking, well, oh, he's going to come to me. I'll be next. I better have a different answer. He might have been tempted just to get back in the crowd. I hope he gets to say, Matthew, ask Matthew what to do. But Andrew stands forward. He says, I've got this kid here, and this kid has two fish and five loaves. It's impossible. I'm embarrassed to even bring it up. 
I know that the other disciples, my bros, are all snickering and laughing. You're an idiot. Why would you bring that forward? That can't do anything. I got all that, Andrew might have said, but it's what we have. What's interesting to me about this is that the disciples had money. They have a treasure named Judas Iscariot. You don't have a treasure if you don't have any money. There's got to be something in the bank. They've got some money, but they are convinced that they don't have enough money. And because they don't have everything, they won't give anything. Did you hear that? Because they don't have everything, they can't figure it all out on their own. They don't think they have enough. They're not going to give anything. But the young boy is unencumbered by this human reason. And he says, well, it seems like a small thing, but it's all I've got. But I'm here with it. Oh, what a lesson for us. If you can all figure it out before it's done, if you can get out an Excel spreadsheet and you can calculate it all and so on and so forth, and you've got it all nailed down. But if you want to see the glory of God, then you do something that puts you at risk of having to depend on him for what you cannot do. The boy says, I don't know what I'm going to eat. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I know that I can't figure it out. I know there's a big need. I know the big dudes who are the 12 disciples can't figure it out. But this Jesus guy, I'm all in. Here's what I've got. You give yourself to God. You surrender yourself to God. You surrender what you have. But I don't have much. I don't have much money. I don't have much talent. I don't have much opportunity. I wasn't well educated. You give God what you have, and he will do something astonishingly good. And so Jesus, receiving this news, is ready to move on. Tell them to sit down, he says. Tell them to sit down in groups. The other gospels tell us that he actually gave them numbers. He says, I want them in groups of 50 or 100. Now, there were 5,000 men alone. The word alone is important because that means there were other people there that were not counted in a patriarchal society, the women and children. But if you just extrapolate by any ordinary measure, if there are 5,000 men, there's probably 15 to 20,000 people altogether when you count the wives and the children and so on and so forth. This is a huge crowd. They need to be subdivided into 50 or 100. What this teaches me, it's another important lesson that four times told to us, if you want to see a miracle, be organized. It seems counterintuitive. Wait, miracles are the stuff of God apart from me. Yes, and God says, I want you to organize for a miracle. You see, the miracles of God are observed when people are willing to take steps to receive the miracle. You walk by faith. I may not be able to know how it's going to get done, but I'm going to get ready for it. Our churches need to be organized. I'm a guy who believes in committees. I'm a guy who believes in, in doing things uh, in an organized way. Our God is a God of order, not of chaos. But when you organize, we tend to see it as organizing to the nth degree so that everything can be done by us. God is saying, you organize so I can swoop in and do things you can't do. I want them to be organized, Jesus said. And then he took the two fish and the five loaves. And he blessed them. The breaking of the bread, he blessed them. Now, as I've been reading the story, I've been trying to put myself in the, in the scene. As I am, I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm with it so far. I get that I need to give everything the boy did. I get that Jesus sees ahead. He's got a, so he's, he's got a solution. I can't see it, but I think he's got this. I, I understand that he was ahead of me, and he's still ahead of me in the solution. I need to surrender everything. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm, I'm all in. To stand over here and watch him do it. All right. Mr. Jesus, I've seen you do some amazing stuff. Now, this is a, this is a step beyond, but I, you, I, I know you do amazing things. And I'm all in to help you. 
And if, if you'll just turn those five loaves of bread right now in front of me, just turn it into a gazillion loaves of bread to feed this crowd. I, I'm, I'm watching it. As soon as you do that, I'm all in to get my bucket and take it over there to that group. But you see, that's not how it worked, is it? See, the disciples couldn't wait for Jesus to take the five loaves and just lay them out in a stone and all of a sudden, abracadabra, twinkle of the nose, a little bit of prayer. And all of a sudden, the loaves begin to stack up right before my eyes. There's a mountain, Mount Rainier of bread loaves. Wow, I'm going to help serve that. That's not how it works. The loaves and the fish are only multiplied when the disciples are willing to walk out on faith to the groups and distribute them. You see, Jesus said, James, James is one of the disciples. That's my name. I'm named after a disciple. My four sons are Jacob, which is James. It's the same. Jacob is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name James. And I have Peter, and I have Andrew, and I have Nathaniel. My wife, after Nathaniel was born, said, I'm sure glad there are only 12 disciples. But we shut that down, but I digress. I'm just saying, I'm all about those Bible names. So I'm just in the story. James, are you going to trust me with this? Well, uh, what do you mean? And Jesus takes one of those loaves of bread, and he takes a little end of it off, and he puts it in a basket. Now, take that over there to those hundred groups of a hundred. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Uh, it's, it's the end of a loaf of bread. I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm not going to take a chance that people think that I am just out of my mind. Are you serious? I believe you can do miracles, but show it to me. No. You take it over there. Do you see how they had to walk by faith? They had to do something that they couldn't figure out. They had to assume the, the, the danger and the risk of looking foolish. Ah. Uh, Hey, you guys in the group here? Hey, you. Uh, I've got a little bread for you. And they took a piece, and they took a piece, and they took a piece, and, there was, and the basket still had more, still had more. I'm guessing that when they ate it all, that basket was down to just another little heel of the, of the loaf. And then he had to go to another group, and another group. And so did they all. But every time they took that little bit, it was multiplied as it was being distributed. And it got so much that everyone was satisfied. They didn't just get a little tiny wafer like we serve at Holy Communion. They had the full meal deal. Your Pastor Brian and Leonidi, who are entertaining me in their home while I'm here this weekend, took me last night to an ice cream shop in Middleton. I don't know the name of it, but they have scoops that they call legendary scoops. Do you know of what I speak? My host said, you'll just want one scoop. They're so small. In my mind, I'm thinking, what a bunch of weenies here. One scoop of ice cream. <laughs> I'm not just going one scoop. I'm, I'm doing the thing. And the, the guy at the counter says, you want a bowl? I said, yeah, I want a bowl and I want two scoops. And I want Rocky Road and I want Death by Chocolate. And I want two honking scoops in that bowl. And he looks at me like, okay. <laughs> and then a moment later, he opens the window and there's, I mean, this bowl. was just a tiny little white bowl like you puts up croutons in, and he had this mass of ice cream. It looked like 10 scoops. I just, I'm telling you the story because I didn't just get a little bit when they passed the, the plate by. I was ice creamed till I was fully satisfied. I ate the whole thing. Yeah, Brian's my witness. I ate the whole thing, but I was fully satisfied, and I was a mess. Chocolate all over my face, and the car's a mess. But I'm telling you, Jesus delivered 
what the need was. But then he said, go collect the leftovers because I don't want anything to be wasted. Jesus doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. He's demonstrating to them his capacity to meet the need and be more than enough. Twelve baskets full were collected. Oh man, I wish Jesus had called me to the ice cream store. What we could collect after I had eaten all that I wanted. You see, Jesus is in the business of giving life, not just life, not just survival. Not just so you can eat by, not just so you can climb and crawl on your stomach until at last it's over. He's here to give you life abundantly. More than enough. Why is the story told? It reminds us of the sovereignty and the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It reminds us that we must trust him and give him all that we have. It reminds us that we must operate by faith and that we will never be able to see the miracles of God until we're willing to take a chance and risk everything for him to show up and demonstrate his power. Churches these days want the next new book. They want the next new thing. They want the next new program. What the church needs is a miracle. But we need to organize for one, and we need to expect one and be willing to put ourselves in a position where we need one. We need to be a people who change the way the world lives. That we are not a monastic Christianity. We are a people who are in the world, but not of the world. And we are a people who understand that after everything else in life is said and done, Jesus, 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 who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, who is God in human form. Jesus, who is the bread of life, the water of life. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the word become flesh. Jesus, who is the very person of God in human form. Jesus, who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Jesus, who is our savior, the good shepherd, and the lamb of God that whatever the challenge, whatever the problem, whatever the difficulty, seen or unseen, anticipated or surprised by, Jesus is more than enough. Today, on this Lord's Day, as you've come out to set your week straight, always good to be on the first day of the week worshiping Jesus on the day of the resurrection. Don't leave this house until you have this settled. Is Jesus someone you know about, or is it someone you know? Do you see the difference? Is Jesus someone you know about, or is it someone you know? If you know Jesus, if you know him personally, thank God today. But if you don't know him, you can know him. He's right here. He's right here. And he wants to give you life. But you must surrender to him your whole basket. The fish and the loaves and everything else, your successes and your failures. Admit your failures to him and just say, Lord, I'm a mess up and I need you to make me right, and I admit that I need you, and I cannot straighten my life out by myself. I need you to do it. Thank you for going to the cross, and I accept it by faith. Make me to be born again. If you don't have that in your history, make it part of your history today. It can be. You can do it in your chair. You can pray, or you can come forward and pray. Maybe you've already made peace with God through Christ, and you know you've been born again, but You're not sure you've got the dynamic energy and power of the Holy Spirit possessing you, the Spirit of Jesus who has owned you because you've got something yet you need to surrender. Well, then you can do that here today too because the Holy Spirit is here and the Holy Spirit brought you to Jesus in the first place, but the Holy Spirit wants to own you and he wants to empower you and he wants to cause you to do things that are jaw-dropping. You can. Oh, yes, you can. But you have to surrender to him completely. 
You can do that here in your chair. Just say, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit. I want more of him. I want more of you. I want to be more. You can do that in your chair. You can come up here and pray. Maybe you've got that covered too, but there's somebody in your heart that's a burden. You have a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend, your town, your neighbor, and you don't know what to do. You might as well be facing a crowd of 5,000, not sure where to get the food, but Jesus knows and pray. Just surrender to him. Say, Lord, this is what I am. It's all I am, but I just, I don't know what to do next except all I have is to give you myself for my son for my spouse, for my child, for my parent, whatever it might be. You can do that in your chair, or you can do it at the front. But don't leave here until you have done something. And if you want to come forward and pray, this morning, I don't know what your custom is, but on the steps from here down to there, nobody's going to bother you. If you come and kneel down here and pray, no one's going to bother you. No one's going to come and ask you what's going on. They're not going to ask to pray with you. They're just going to leave you alone. Private personal prayer. But the, the Holy Spirit has prompted you to kneel down. And the Spirit wants you to humble yourself and kneel down right here. You do that on this side. Now, if you want to do that and have someone pray with you, because sometimes I just need someone to pray with me and just hear me and to share my prayer, you come over on this side and someone will come and pray with you. But here's a tip. If right now there's anything in your heart, anything in you that is calling you to kneel down before God as the team comes up to lead us in a closing song, if there's anything in your heart that is calling you to kneel before God, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Sometimes we wrestle, well, is that really God talking to me? How do I know that's really God? Here's what you can know. It's not the devil talking to you. He's never going to prompt you to kneel before God. That's not in his game. It's the Holy Spirit. Obey him. And see what will happen. The Lord loves you. And he's there for you. And he's calling you. And he wants to use you to do things right here that you could never do by yourself. And to give you a sense of wholeness and completeness that you could never otherwise know. Our Father, this morning, we're so thankful for every person in the house. Not one here by chance. We thank you for the Apostle John and his vivid memory of the feeding of the 5,000. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that gave us the text and the word and inspired the events. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that's working right now. And I pray that you'll call each of us and draw each of us to you. If there's anyone here, Lord, that needs to surrender their life into the Lord's hand, speak to them. May they not escape your voice. If there's anyone here that needs to have a fuller portion of your Holy Spirit, speak to them. Don't let them leave here without hearing your voice. If there's anyone here that has a burden of any kind for anyone or any good thing, speak to them. Don't let them leave without knowing you are here. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Same. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would take this word from this morning, Lord, and we would lay it at your feet. And God, that we would continue to journey closer to you tomorrow than we are today. And God, that we would step out in faith. God, that we would let you solve the problems. God, that we would, would be ready for your miracle. And Lord, I pray that as we go this week, Lord, that we would shine your light and your love, God, in a world that so desperately needs it. And God, may you walk us through every situation, every conversation, every day at work, every, every dinner at home with our family. God, whatever it would be, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in every detail. God, we love you. God, we thank you, God, for entering into our lives, God, and helping us journey forward closer to you. 
God, as we leave today, Lord, as we celebrate together as a church family and eating together, as we um, just journey in our faith together, Lord, may you be glorified. Lord, guide us this week as we leave here to shine your light, to share your love. Thank you, God. We praise you today. Guide us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.